Hey everyone, welcome to today's session. It's a Dev2P episode again with Scott Hanselman, and he's going to be talking about some amazing things, his journey in tech, and our host is going to be Nandini, of course, as usual. And we have Dawood and Cinder here as well. So the episode is going to be great. I hope all of you learn a lot today from today's session. So let us know what you thought of it. Uh, check out Scott Hanselman's podcast as well. Um, and yeah, the link is in the description. So yeah, Sunda, Dawood, Nandini, what do you all think? So, so even this, so before you go to the recording, I'll just say that there's a lot of things that we have learned like during the pre-recording session of Scott's and, and during the session. So make sure you look out for those tips because Scott says a lot of things that are worth to like uh, listen and learn from him and yes so just make sure that you listen each and every point of his because those are some like I wouldn't say life-changing but uh, I, 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 like he says it, it quotes in such, such a way that uh, those are like impact that those that can make impact on your lives yes true that well um, going to me Scott session oh. was a full uh, bloomer <laughs> and we just had so much so much of uh, information we we had to process and i guess i will have to you know watch the session itself like twice or thrice to get through all those things in our head and it was a lot of a lot of knowledge and things that we could implement in our daily lives to be consistent and to be uh, productive and i guess everyone should listen to each and everything it's quite a session and yeah you'll love it yeah i, I agree absolutely Absolutely, it's it's um, the episode was great. Um, it was something that I mean we all looked forward to, and there was just so much to learn in real life. I mean, from the workplaces, from what you learn when you know you are with your colleagues and all this stuff. So Scott actually dealt with it as though he was teaching psychology. I mean, so it was. It was great to have discussions with um, Scott from the previous episode, and I mean, this is awesome. So, fuck, just check out for it. Yeah, no, no, thank, thank you, uh, David. Thank you, Nandini and Sinda. I uh, hope you all enjoy the session. And yeah, don't forget to leave a like, comment, and subscribe. And if you're and if you're new uh, student ambassador, then make sure you check the playlist of a beginner's guide to an explorer's guide to being a successful Microsoft Learn ambassador. So. Make sure you also check that out. Yes, enjoy the session. Hey everyone, this is Nandini Sharma, and this is another episode of Dev to Be. We have Scott Hanselman here, and he is a programmer, a teacher, a speaker, a blogger, a podcaster, and an author. And there goes a lot of stuff there. And then the tech. He's he he writes about, he podcasts about tech, that health, then traditions it's so much it's it's so much i cannot put it in words it's it's absolutely amazing to uh, have him on a meeting like this and to talk with you scott i'm so excited to have you and i guess we are going to talk about everything and anything on everything thank you for having <laughs> me okay so um scott i just uh, you know starting with the very uh, basic question a little uh, old school maybe uh, so a lot of people may not be familiar with you here so the story the story of scott hanselman 
So everyone knows you here, but uh, the story of how you began as a techie and the stuff you do right now is a like any brief that you want to give to all of us. Okay. Well, I mean, I live here in Portland, Oregon, and I work remotely for Microsoft. So while we're all working remotely during these difficult times, I've been remote the whole time. Uh, the only difference from remote work versus quarantine work is that I have to wear a mask when I go to the shops. But um, unfortunately, as a remote worker, nothing has really changed, and my whole team is remote as well, so nothing's okay. changed for them either. Oh, okay. So uh, I have heard about you know your uh, your vlogs I have read, and then your podcast I have heard, and then you you say that consistency uh, is where that is what that has mattered all this time of your journey and. how you have worked through things and i i saw that 744 podcasts till now and then those blogs were like numerous of blogs so do you want to tell about how you were so consistent all this time and uh, how did you you know sometimes you are passionate about something but still we cannot be consistent about it so how do you i think that the when i say consistency i mean like if you set up a system for yourself for success you're more likely to succeed right so if you are are studying for school and you know someone says you must study 6 hours a day morning and night 7 days a week that is probably something you could do for one week and then you would burn out right um that's not a success system you have to look at your life and the number of hours that you are given and decide uh intentionally deliberately what are you going to do with those hours Uh, oftentimes people find themselves saying, "Well, I wish I had more hours in the day." But I think that what they really don't do is look at the hours that they were given and really um break those hours down because I think we waste hours. We waste hours stressing, watching TV, that downtime after dinner that you just like, "Oh, this day sucked." It's okay to have those times. It's okay to waste time, but it's also helpful if you just take um you do an audit of all of your time and decide what you want to do with it. So if you do that, you can set up systems for success. For example, if I suggested Nandini that you, do you have a blog? Uh yeah, I I I like started writing. Okay, great. So it's how cool. how often do you blog? It's it's, it's just two for now because it's oh, okay, it was great. like like a week back or so. So yeah. Congratulations. That's awesome. So a success system for you might be once a week or maybe twice a month. So yeah. twice a month doesn't doesn't sound too hard. I like once a week because you, you don't let the distance between two blog posts go too far. Yeah. But if I told you if you you're interviewing someone for your show and I'm like Nandini you must blog every day. That's not going to happen. You're going to yeah. do it for like 5 days and you're going to miss one and then you're going to feel bad. And the system that you design is then going to make you feel bad about yourself. So yeah. try not to design a system that makes you feel bad about yourself. So I blogged I blogged Tuesdays and Thursdays. It works. It's it's it, it doesn't stress me out. Um I miss one or two occasionally, but then I can go back in time and fix it. Um it's like if someone says work out. Okay, great. I can work out every single day, twice a day, mornings and night. No. No, like 3 times a week. <laughs> so consistency yeah. equals success systems. True that. So we have to be productive and consistent, but then uh, we have to fix our plan according to ourselves. That 
how we can adjust it to. So, um, well, actually, well, let me let me say something because you said a really. I thought when when you just said productive and consistent, but I thought you said protective, which is also a good word because you're actually being protective of yourself. So I think you yeah. should, this is really great. You've got me a new idea. You want to be productive and protective of yeah. your of your of your space of the self care and taking care of yourself so that the productivity does not yeah. damage you. Yeah, true that. So uh, it's already an interesting conversation. I'm just you know uh, processing everything. So so what are the myths that you think right now the recruitment industry follows? You know, we when we say like we talked about consistency, and then we have this hundred days of codes, and then we have blogging every day. Then we you know everything just matters in our portfolio nowadays, and we try to make it, and it's good. It's not bad. It's, it's good. But then sometimes. as we talked about you know we feel bad about something if we have missed a day or two and then we cannot manage to do it so there have been a uh, few more recru- uh, myths about the recruitments nowadays you know uh, that college this college or if i am not good enough or if i was not able to do this and that person was doing the whole thing till now and he is such a pro and i'm not so all this has mattered and somewhere you know our processing system has changed uh, uh, with time about you know there are people already that ha- who have done this and we haven't and we are just starting so we might not reach at that point so do you have anything for those people like i have personally uh, personally faced imposter syndrome and now it's better it's it's far more better uh, after that after the point that i uh, joined msp so uh, what do you want to say about it imposter syndrome? okay well there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there so first in the re- in the recruiting space and in the 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 recruiters for the most part and i'm 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 making a stereotype here so a generalization so forgive me okay <clears throat> often the recruiters are not technical so they're looking at keywords on your resume as and so when they are screening you for your job sometimes the screening can be unfair yeah and that's unfortunate they're going to they're going to look and they're going to say oh you know she doesn't have 20 years of javascript clearly she can't do the job Uh additionally I I worry sometimes that recruiters uh look for skill buzzwords. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you can find a company that is interested in how you think and not your list of skills. Right? Yeah. Uh sometimes we joke about how, you know, like let's say React has been out for 5 years and then the resume you know, the recruiter says, I'm looking for people with 9 years of React. Yeah, like, true that. It's been a meme for a long time. Yeah. So, I don't care if you know React. I'm interested in things like fundamentals of JavaScript, fundamentals of networking, you know, uh do you have the base of the pyramid? If you're early in your career and I'm hiring a mechanic, do you mostly yeah. understand how to take apart and put together a car? I'm not looking for 10 years on a Volkswagen or a Honda. I just want to know if you have a general understanding of cars and I as the uh employer I'm going to teach you the little details. So try yeah. to avoid buzzword because if you get into a job or a recruiter situation and it's clear that they're just looking for a list of comma, you know, C sharp comma, SQL comma, what then you don't want to work there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's sure. that's the first thing. Um and then the imposter syndrome thing, I wrote a blog post, I want to say like 10 or 15 years ago called I'm a phony. Um and I decided that everybody feels like that sometimes. And 
the most people who feel like that are probably pretty good at their jobs because if you walked into your job like yeah man i'm nandini like i know what's up like i know everything i'm i got first grades 97 percent that, that you know like no one wants to work with that person right yeah. if you acted like a 10x developer if i was all like hey i'm i'm scott hanselman google me that's not cool right like yeah um but at the same time, like you'll make mistakes. Like literally yesterday, I made a mistake. I blogged this great thing that I discovered, and I was like, "Oh, look at this! This hack for Microsoft Edge, so cool!" And I blogged it, tweeted it. Ten minutes later, someone's like, "You know, that's been built into the product for like a month, and you don't need to do any of that." So I was like, "Oh crap!" Like the whole blog post is completely useless now. You know oh what I mean? Like, like. I thought that I'd found this cool hack and they built it in to the product. And now it's like, yeah, you just right click and I right click and then there it is. And I'm like, oh, so do I let that crush me? And I stop. Yeah, see, you're, you, your face is what I was doing. It's just like, you know, so do I let that destroy me? Do I let that ruin my blogging for the day? So I just went back. I edited the blog post. I said, edit, update. And I said, hey. A new friend has told me that this has been built in. So these instructions, you know, six through nine are not interesting. Isn't it great that this is built in now? I basically leaned into the mistake, kept the blog post up and used it as a, hey, this is a really cool thing that they fixed this thing. I felt bad, but I put a time limit on how long I would feel bad. Okay. So like if something bad happened, like feel bad. But can you maybe say, all right, this was stupid. It was a blog post. I'm going to feel bad for 15 minutes. So I decided to feel bad for 15 minutes and now I'm done. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. No, that was a long question too. So yeah, justified. Okay. That's, that's great. You know, it's, it's okay to feel bad and then just put time limit to it. Yeah. That's noted. So, um, so your blogs and po podcast again, I'm, I am, you know, personally in love with all those podcasts and blogs because it, there's, there's a lot of diversity in there. You can never, you know, it's not about a particular topic. It's about health. It's about tech. It's about diversity. It's, it's, it's a lot and it's, it's lovely. So kudos to that. And so I was just uh, going through them and then I, uh, I, I searched, I thought I like, you know, so it's true. And I, I saw that you, you are keenly interested in mental health and health issues and how to relate and solve them through tech. So uh, I saw that you, in the beginning of your career, uh, found a solution for diabetes. And um, so what do you want to put light on, like how you want to put light on that? So how's health and tech, you think that can change the world now? Together. Well, I mean, I didn't have a solution for diabetes, but but when I was 20, I became yeah. a type one diabetic and a type one diabetic is different than like if you have any relatives or grandparents that have diabetes when they're older. This is different. That's usually called type two diabetes. It's dietary. It's usually when our our aunties and uncles and grandparents get diabetes when they're older. It's usually from eating. I have a, an insulin pump with a tube and the tube is plugged into me all the time and I carry it. It's like, a, it's like an external organ. Um, and then I have some implants in my, in, my, in my stomach. You can hear it. That's like a Bluetooth. So I usually have to do the math myself. And um, there's a community of hackers online that can make this controllable by your phone. 
So instead of me doing the math, then the software can do it. So you can actually look at my blood sugar on the web. Um, I put my blood sugar in my Git prompt. So I have my branch and then I have my blood sugar in the prompt at the same time. Um, so it's just like a thing that I like to, to, uh, to work on that makes me happy. And there's a great, huge community of open source artificial pancreas people. Yeah, I, I read that uh, word artificial pancreas and I was a little confused about what exactly it meant. Right. And so yeah. what it means is your pancreas is an organ inside your body. Mine is outside. So it's a combination of my phone, a bridge, a communications bridge and an insulin pump with actual medicine inside it. Okay. The phone tells the bridge to tell the pump to deliver the medicine and this tube is filled with insulin and attached to my stomach. Oh my god. Sorry. I am a little sorry about it. Gross, maybe? Um, I don't know. I shouldn't have. I'm, I'm not sure if I, I, it was the right question. I'm sorry. I think it's a fine question. Here's another thing that I want you to know. So you didn't know any of that, right? Yeah, I didn't know. But, but this is one of the things that's interesting about invisible disabilities and privilege. I didn't need to tell you. Yeah. Right? Because if I keep all my equipment and scars hidden, then yeah. I'm just like really, hey, this is a successful guy from Microsoft that we're interviewing, right? But if I yeah. share a disability, whether it be this or an artificial leg or uh, a mental illness, these are all things that that people have that they can either choose to share or not. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't feel bad at all. Everybody's got something. You just may not be able to see it. Yeah, true. Um, okay, I'm a little blown. So, uh, I also wanted to ask about the health issues, like the mental health issues. Uh, there's a lot that this batch, the 2020 batch has faced uh, when it comes to recruitments or things like that. And then the 2021 batch is quite worried about their recruitments or their placements. So how like the hiring froze and then the visas got cancelled. A lot of things have happened. So what what do you want to tell them yeah. there might be something and then uh, a lot of developers face anxiety and you know depression and stuff like that mm -hmm. and and i also heard about self-diagnosis in one of your podcasts i'm mentioning that again again and again i'm sorry so uh, what do you want to say about that um the the thing i like i mean i i don't have issues like that but i try to support people who do by destigmatizing just as the diabetes thing is a thing that I have and my boss doesn't make me feel bad about it and my work doesn't make me feel bad about it, we should not let our works or the industry uh, make people with, uh, with challenges feel bad about themselves, right? Remember before we talked about success systems for productivity. Yeah. We should set up a success system at our jobs so that people who are facing particular challenges can mm -hmm. feel okay about themselves, can be yeah. set up for success in their job. So I've done a number of podcast episodes on destigmatizing mental health. And the mm -hmm. most important thing I think is burnout. How long have you been in tech? Uh, it's three years. Three years, okay. Do you so feel like you're gonna burn out? Are you stressed out? How are you feeling? No, not really stressed out. I'm a little worried about my placement next year and uh, the skills I know might not be enough and mm -hmm. I might not be the pro in the skills I know itself. So it's a little of a dilemma if I am doing the right thing right now because, you know, uh, I have to put a lot of work in 
myself. So, yeah, I'm not a pro. <laughs> right, so but I think the trick is not stressing me. You're not out, but supposed to be a pro, right? You're yeah. you're three years in, right? Yeah. So it's it's a challenge to find out you have a thirty or forty year career ahead of you. Can you, it's a marathon. Yeah. Can you pace yourself? Take breaks. Give yourself a little bit of permission to fail sometimes. Fail, and and can you find companies and people and mentors that will let you fail fast and often, but in a way that doesn't make you feel bad, and mm -hmm. that that some company can't use your failure against you. Yeah. Like you want to make sure that if you go work for a company or you're doing work with friends in a in a, in a study group, yeah. that if you make a mistake, which everyone does, yeah. that they don't go. Yeah. This is just like Nandini. She's proven that she does. She makes all these mistakes. Instead, you want them to say, "I made that mistake too, and this is what I learned from it." And I yeah. love that you made that mistake quickly, and you figured out the answer quickly, and you turned it around. If yeah. you, if you and I were debugging some web application, the only reason that I know more is that I've had, I've made all those mistakes before, and I know which questions to ask. Yeah, and I'll say sure. stuff like, "Oh, well, check the SSL certificate. Oh, oh, is the clock right on the on the computer?" And like, you'll go, "How did you know that?" I did that like ten years ago, and it sucked. Like, just remember all your mistakes. And the only difference between you and me is I'm a little ahead of you, and I've made a lot more mistakes. Okay, <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, you made me feel a, like a lot more confident about myself. <laughs> it so, would be, okay, you're not supposed to know everything. I promise. Yeah, true that. And coming on to failures, so um, how do you think that we should handle failures? You know, you just mentioned that failing is not a bad thing that you learn that that just a mistake. So um, how do you think that we should, you know, more of take failures? Because uh, another day I get, uh, you know, a, a, a confirmation letter about that I was not selected for a company or an internship or, or I did not get it. So. There must be hard times, as I asked. Like the 2020 yeah. batch must have been facing a little tough time, I guess. So, yes. what do you want to, you know, what do you want to say for them? Well, the part, the part that's hard with all of this advice that you and I are sharing and talking about is, it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah, that's one. I yeah. could be totally wrong in everything that I'm saying. And someone could come back later and say, "But you said you and Nandini said da 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 da, right?" The hard part about tech is that not everyone is going to succeed right off the bat, like immediately. Mm -hmm. So, um, what you and I can do as community members is try to make space for as many people as possible, and pick them up, and encourage them when they make a mistake. Yeah. I hope your placement goes well. But if yeah. it doesn't, then we'll do it again. Like we'll like we'll pick ourselves up and we'll go and we'll kick butt to the next thing, you know. Well, well, we are asking you questions so that we can keep like hold up and keep ourselves motivated. So it's okay. It's not about you know your advice well, could not match with everyone. So. Definitely don't stop though. Like um, yeah. I went to uh, a community college. It's like a two-year college, not a official university. Mm -hmm. And then I finished my university degree. Eleven uh, years later. Okay. So I graduated. I started school like university in 1992, but I didn't actually yeah. graduate until 2003. 
So even though I've been in tech for 28 years, the first 11 okay. years I was going to school at night. Okay. Oh, I was a little confused about that thing on your LinkedIn. So now it's quite clear. <laughs> yeah, so okay. I did the first two years while okay. working and going at night. So I started working in 1992. Yeah. I went to school while also doing an internship and working. And then I was working full time, going nine to five and then school six to 10. They had night school. And then I took a break for a year or so. And then I started going to school to do my four year degree. And that just okay. took, it took 11 years to get all the credits together. Oh my God, that's, that's a story. <laughs> that's a but, lot but of But here's the funny thing patience. though, after 11 years, no one cared. No one looked at my <laughs> resume. Like nobody wants, the degree was for me at that point, right? Early yeah. in your career, you need the degree. When you're in 10 or 20 years, you need it less so. I do think though that sometimes, uh, you know, being an older man, people will be less likely to ask me for my degree. So there's a, there's some privilege there uh, as well. Okay, yeah, makes sense. So um, what I just, you know, I read about your book on the programmatic uh, tips and concrete tricks for navigation of mixed geek slash normal marriage. You know, it's a big... It's oh a yeah, big, it's uh, a book I've been working on for years. I really need to finish it. I've only got like five chapters written. Yeah, so this is the book that you have been writing and with, with your wife. So, uh, relationship hacks, that is something that geeks get interested in mostly because <laughs> they mostly suck at it. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Well, so, I think that, yeah. What do you want to say? What's, what's, what is that book going to bring us, bring to uh, us? And... I've written, a, if you go to my blog and search for relationship hacks, there's like a few half dozen pod, uh, not podcast, um, a half dozen blog posts. The okay. idea is that program and again these are all generalizations and and stereotypes yeah. for lack of a better word but yeah, programmers yeah. want to fix things and mm -hmm. humans don't usually compile very well so you know when when you're having a relationship problem mm -hmm. programmer types and this is this is sometimes gendered but not usually gendered let's say that uh you know you and i are programmers so our brains are similar this is the idea and mm -hmm. our relationships yeah. let's say our non-technical partner is not yeah. a, a programmer, and they have a problem. You're gonna want to debug. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna like okay. Well, let's let's figure this out. Like and like I don't want you to debug, Nandini. I just want you to listen to me. Just let me just talk. And you're like, but talking is not gonna solve the problem. Like I did it here. Debug, 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 debug. Right. And <laughs> yeah. They just want to talk about the problem. So yeah. like, <laughs> chapter one. Uh, just shut up and listen. They don't want you to solve the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's super annoying. Intense. Like, like, do you want this thing fixed or are we just going to talk? Oh, I guess we're talking. Okay. <laughs> there's that's a really great... you know, keeping the patience to just talk and not, you know, uh, whenever there's a problem, there's someone says that you need to fix that. I'm like, okay, let's get down to it. You know, I, yeah, I have yeah. listen to say like, something. Yeah, I can relate it, relate it, definitely. You know, it's something There's a really great um, video you should link to that's called It's Not About the Nail. It's a commercial and this 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 couple is talking and the woman is like, I've got this pounding headache. It's like right here in my face. And then there's a nail sticking out of her forehead. It's about this long. And the guy that the, 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 the other person is saying, it could be that you have a nail in your forehead 
and she says, it's not about the nail. You always do this. You know, I like, you need to listen to me. And so she's like, my sweaters, my jumpers are always snagging when I put them on my head. And he's like, you know, we could take that nail out. And she's like, you just, you need to listen and let me talk. So it's, that is very much the programmer relationship. We want to debug those problems. And it's, it's very much not gender specific. Actually, I wonder what it must be like to be in a relationship with two programmers. Do they pair program and debug their lives? I don't know. <laughs> oh my god, that was funny. Pair <laughs> program. Okay. Much <laughs> also. I I am you know I am seriously waiting for the book to be out. I want that book soon. Well, I'll send you the I, early chapters, but I really just need to sit down and take a vacation and fix it and finish it. Yeah, because you know your the way that you're telling things right now, they are so interesting and. <laughs> I love it. I just need to read that book, read that book soon. So yeah, whenever it's out, I'm gonna look for it super soon. Um, so yeah, we have had a little bit of talk now, and the, you know how how do you want to talk about the use of technology now and the cool stuff that you want to tell us about? It's it's all about you. Yeah, you want to tell about <laughs> anything, anything that you want um, to tell. I think in closing. I would say that there is more stuff to know than is possible for you to know. So yeah. as you and our friends who are watching start your careers, you're going to have to let some stuff go. You can't know Python and Java and C Sharp and machine learning and robots and like, do you want to specialize or do you want to be a generalist? Those are going to be really hard decisions to make. Try to pick technologies that are general, generalized, but remember that yeah. you can't know everything. Like I'm not yeah. an expert on AI. I have a familiarity yeah. with it. I'm comfortable with the concepts. Yeah. But a data scientist isn't my job. Um, when I came up and when I learned and when I did my degree, the amount of technology that existed was less than there is today. Okay. So you're going to get analysis paralysis. You're going to get yeah, so much. Like it's like, I have, like, I can't absorb. There's so much stuff I can know. Pick small stuff, small steps. Remember that um, as you're staring at an empty page, wondering what you're going to type, typing anything is better than typing nothing. Yeah. Even True. if it's, even if it's code, you're going to delete and refactor later. Like, always forward motion a little tiny step at a time that's my my encouragement to you and your friends wow and a question again so uh how is your experience at at dave to be <laughs> this is like a personal question too but you know you just um before, like the call was on so you just said that this is my first call with most college students right oh um, i just thought it was I like just think it's, it's funny you're all so organized and you have like all this technology to make the show like this available and it looks so professional with the with the the frames and the grid i think you're all i think you're all great and very organized i was not putting on a tv show when i was your age so i think it's amazing <laughs> Oh wow, that's great! Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the the from the beginning when I started texting you about if we could have a podcast, if we could have a session together, about uh, we could talk things out, and then today when I'm actually doing it, it's 
I was so excited. I'm still so excited. I'm, I was, I was like, I don't know what what I'm going to ask him, what I'm going to, what we are going going to talk. But I need to talk to this guy because this guy, this guy has a cool office. He he does cool pod podcast, and I learned so much from his blogs. I could, you know, I I I ran through your website right after the bill session, and then I just saw a lot of stuff there, and I was, I just wanted to have a conversation with you about anything. I just wanted to know. we 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 all have been you know scott hansen has been uh, uh, you know our a first you know the star for us for now because you know we have been uh, we have not had a conversation ever with you the college students as you say so we wanted this to happen so well i appreciate I'm, that one one thing i do want to gently challenge you on though the yeah. idea of a star programmer yeah. is silly sure i i think uh you could use terms like super old programmer or you know venerable programmer who's been around for a long time the only difference between me and you is that i'm you in the future you're talking to nandini who's come back from the future and i'm telling you about your cool office that you're going to have and all the great stuff that you're going to build just stick in tech and and you'll have all these things and more yeah we we uh, we you know uh, we personally uh, at i guess at our age everyone is like that so we personally think to rush things off and then my dad told me that you are rushing things off you just have to stop and do what you are doing the best way you can so you don't have to you know get suppressed by the failures and all and i could you know uh, con- uh, conclude that from your talk as well so it's it's awesome to have this conversation with you i'm so thankful to have you here and yeah so guys wrapping this up we had an awesome conversation and i am so glad that we had this conversation i'm so glad that scott answered this year i'm i'm really thankful to him and yeah looking up for the reviews and comments of yours and bye bye wait for the next section and here we are with another episode of tape to be i'm super excited and honored to have bill wigner as our guest and there's so much to talk about bill and i would like to like him to do the talking today but so yes he has been uh, he's, he has been fabulous throughout his career and he has been so much motivated and uh, has inspired so many lives and journeys so uh, we'll we'll get right to it but before i will want bill to say something oh. uh, <laughs> uh welcome hello everybody um I'm happy you invited me to come here and and chat, and uh, I'm excited to see what all of you do on on your journeys. That's, that's 
So um, we'll, we'll just uh, get to the questions, I guess, if that's fine. Sure. Okay. So the first question that I have is, um, when did you find out that you are passionate about tech and like, was it college? And also starting your career as a member of scientific staff, what's the story? Okay, so this would have been back in the 80s. In high school, I started to do some some simple things just with uh, a computer we had in the math department. Uh, that was was all um, programming and basic. And I was lucky enough to have a really good math teacher that let us do interesting things in that when we get to this point, like in, in upper algebra and when you start getting into geometry and calculus, um, you know, where you're doing kind of similar problems and you have to do like 20 of them to get all the practice and so on. Uh, myself and a couple of other friends started writing small programs on, you know, these computers the math department had to do our homework. And he gave us credit for that because, as he put it then, it's, if you can write something for the computer to do these problems, you don't need to do, you know, 20, 30 problems by hand. Um, so I really enjoyed that. At the same time, though, I was really, really enjoyed physics mostly. And started college, I was going to be ahead uh, of uh, getting a mechanical engineering degree. And one semester in, I found I liked software a lot more than building things. So switched majors to uh, computer science and engineering and went through the rest of the undergrad program there. Um, the um, the position for member scientific staff, that was basically just the terminology used by the company was Bell Northern Research, which was the research arm for the Canadian telephone company, um, at that time Northern Telecom. And a lot of what we were doing then was research for networking and office automation and you know related uh, technology there. So there was a lot of really interesting forward thinking things that we were doing in terms of like we had, it was just inside we basically had screen sharing working on ASCII terminals if it was inside the same LAN on the same phone switch. Um, you know, this is 1987, so it was it was some interesting things that we got to do there. Um, and what I worked on primarily there was developer tools, uh, either change management systems or um, other things that were debugging the uh, telephony network and so on and uh, just kept going from there, learning new things and seeing things I found really interesting and kept pursuing those. Wow, that's, that's quite a journey. Might have got you a bit nostalgic. Um, so yeah, uh, and then there comes the question that's, uh, that's like, um, after 14 years of your journey as a CEO and with your company being recognized as the fastest growing company in America, not only once, but twice, and various other milestones that uh, that you achieved as a CEO. So what was your journey as a CEO and why did you make the decision of selling the firm with so many establishments on the list and that passive growth? So um, a lot of different things. and. First was sort of how we grow the grew the firm. It, it kind of grew by accident, in that uh, my co-founder and I were both uh, strong software people, 
And what we really enjoyed was building the software. And the reason we formed a company together is as independents, we found that we kept bringing each other in for to work on, on each other's projects. And, you know, kept referring things to each other and then started working together. And our original vision would have been something that was more of a collaboration of consultants. And that really didn't wasn't going very far. But what we found was having one of us as a lead and bringing in you know, more people that we could work with and help grow, build stronger project teams. So that was kind of how we grew the firm is over the next, well, it would have been 13 years, we kept getting larger and larger projects and then kept hiring more developers to help us do larger and larger projects up until 2013. And the reason for selling it is once we got to, once we got probably as far as 2011 or so, so about, you know, once we were kind of part, a good ways up that growth, a lot of our time was no longer involved in the technology part and in building the software or designing the software or any of the things that we really enjoyed doing and the things that we started the company to do. But so much of our time was now spent running the business, finding new projects, finding new, uh, you know, new work for our teams as they finished a different project. And that was not, neither our strong suit, you know, it wasn't what we were best at, nor was it what we wanted to spend our days doing. Um, and we looked around and started to look a little bit to see if we could find someone else to do more of the sales kinds of things and we could each take kind of restructure the company so we could take on more of the architecture and software development. Um, and we really didn't find anyone that fit the culture and fit the mold. And then we decided at that point that we were gonna uh, look for a buyer that, that fit our culture. Um, Atomic Object did that. They had a, a and, and they grew similar to what we did, but the difference was the three people they had in leadership really enjoyed, you know, finding the new leads and finding the projects to work on more than they enjoyed doing the software work. And uh, that was the reason why we, we accepted their offer, um, you know, which the good part was they kept everybody on staff because they really liked the culture we had built on building software. And then, um, again, their structure to be in the leadership, you had to be part of the sales. So, um, which was my whole reason for selling it in the first place. Uh, so that's when I went off to do um, work independently, teaching developers again, and then eventually landed at Microsoft. That's, that's, that's a great, incredible story. And then those tough decisions and those firm, firm passion that you have, it's, it's fascinating. Wow. Uh, I'm blown. So uh, yeah, coming up with the next question. So we uh, we know that you are the co-founder of the Humanitarian Toolbox, and yeah. it is an open source software to support disaster relief efforts. So can you tell me more about it and how code saves lives? And is there anything we are getting on COVID-19? Um, yeah, so, so here's sort of the backstory on that. And this, there's a theme that's kind of running through these answers that I'll get to at the end of this one, is what's where we started Humanitarian Toolbox, and this was also probably 2013, 2014, so shortly after 
we'd sold SRT Solutions. A group of friends um, spearheaded primarily by Richard Campbell, who is one of the hosts of .NET Rocks, among other things. And they were approached by Microsoft that Microsoft wanted to do something code for good to support the Visual Studio launch. And Richard really took that to heart, but had a couple really strong requests for it. The main one being that it had to be something that was sustainable, meaning that we had to, you know, it, it couldn't be one of these, okay, so we're going to write some code and now we're just going to disappear and people get to use it. We wanted to form some kind of a structure so that whatever got done would be software that was going to be maintained and installed and supported for these organizations that aren't software organizations but that want to use software and could benefit from it. And our original model was looking around to see somebody had to be doing this because it was just such an obviously good idea, right? Software to help aid humanitarian relief efforts. And we couldn't find anything. There did not seem to be any charity actually doing that, at least not in a sustainable way. Um, and we really didn't like partnering with any of the companies that put software in the disaster relief effort. Um, and in part because the cost structure wasn't right. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, and that made it hard for them to really get their software getting used because um, people didn't want to change habits in a disaster. So that was when we formed the charity with the idea that we could build software working with charitable organizations in advance of an event and by doing it that way, what we would hope was the people who would be on the ground during a disaster would already be familiar with the software and then they could use it effectively and um, make a difference rather than trying to train people to use new software when a disaster happened, um, when you know there's more, much more urgent needs for one. And the last thing you wanna to try to do is take a trained team and change how they do something in a crisis. So that was where we started. Um, and then with the help of another of the founders, Tony Surma, at that time was the director of Microsoft Disaster Relief, which was an organization inside of Microsoft Philanthropies. And what they are responsible for is they will supply resources in times of crisis to local governments, to NGOs or non-government agencies, um, or national and international organizations that are in support of disasters. Um, they usually do it very quietly um, and just help get things done. And then, so we kind of partnered with them to learn more about what software would be useful and what things we could try to build. And, you know, we filled an Azure DevOps board with like 30 different ideas that came from all over. And we looked for ones that were um, really baked well. So they had good requirements that we've, and we felt that the technology was um, mature enough to make it work. So we started with that and we then slowly proved that Yes, we can bring developers together to build things that will help people on a volunteer basis 
if there's the structure around it and if there are project leaders in place that can help define what has to get built. And then the third thing that we really added once we started working on already, which was our second big project, was that to really make it work well, we had to have a representative from an agency who could really help define the requirements and say, okay, these features are the things that we'll really use. Yeah, you're looking at that. I understand what you're saying, developer people with cool ideas. We won't use that. And we could kind of help focus it and, and make sure that the development fit what people were going to use. Um, and that also helped drive the development a little bit because what we could do then is, as we're looking for volunteers and looking for people to work on it, you know, we could point out, you know, hey, Jim is here from the Red Cross. He is telling us what features he needs. So if you help us on these features, yes, that's going to get used. Your volunteer time is, is going to have an impact. Um, and that's where we're sitting now. And now, uh, in terms of COVID, um, because we're in the midst of the crisis, it is hard to get reasonable requirements to build something for working with COVID. And it's also, there are some really specialized research being done on modeling, on uh, molecular biology, uh, machine learning, and um, uh, what's the term I want? Um, you know, the pandemic research to look at, you know, how can we look at the big data sets from what we see and start to learn things. Uh, there are other researchers really doing that. So our best move is just stay out of their way. Um, because there are, some, there are some really big research arms looking at that. What we are doing, and I know when we met last week, I said, I think we'd have the board ready. We don't. It's probably going to be about three days. So we're about to launch a project that is kind of retargeting something that was originally going to be built for earthquake preparedness that will now be for COVID quarantine preparedness. And a key thing about it is because it's built for preparedness, it's also applicable to areas that might be prone to hurricanes or typhoons or blizzards or forest fires. You know, are you ready for two weeks without power or two weeks without running water or whatever it may be? And what kind of things should you be ready for? And then it's also tied into, in this instance, for earthquakes, the um, U.S. Geological Survey data. So it will be able to give alerts if there are early tremors going. And again, you can adapt that for other weather events. Like right now, there's Tropical Depression 4 is forming off the Atlantic. So you can, you know, this would be a good time for people in the southeastern United States to think about what the plan would be if it turns into a hurricane. You know, don't panic, don't do anything crazy, but you know, do you have gas and oil for the generator? Do you have drinking water at home? You know, do you know do you have all the documents you need if you need to evacuate and so on? That kind of preparedness. And again, that gets to our model of trying to build software that's useful in multiple situations so that the charities can keep using it. Um, and I know because you asked, we're going to get that, get a board launched with tasks for people to volunteer on in, within a week. We've got a meeting tomorrow where I think we'll be getting ready to kick it off. 
and I'll respond in the chat here once that that board's live to um, put a link if people want to work on it. Um, and as I said, like kind of getting onto these answers, it's kind of a theme here in terms of looking at where you want to go. Um, if you look at how we we look at problems as we're and and how we want to solve them, um, the technique I use fairly often is something called mind mapping, where I start with looking at what skills I have right now and, and where I'm at. I might look at something kind of off in the distance and say, this is really where I want to go. This is an end destination. And then I start trying to build some kind of a map from here's where I am, there's where I want to go. And then around where I am, there are choices I can make. Which of those choices and actions takes me where I want to go? You know, so yeah, yeah. Relating that back to HTBox, the first thing we wanted to do is, well, can we actually get volunteers to build software? Can we partner with charities to get some good requirements? Can we get charities to deploy these applications? Now, can't now we're up to can we build something sustainable that will continue to be useful over a period of years and host it and get it updated and so on. So we keep trying one new thing and keep trying to get closer to the vision where we set out for, you know, when we first founded it. Oh, oh. I mean, that's I mean, a whole lot, lot of process. process. I can hear myself, I guess. Yeah, hello? Okay. Um, sorry, I guess sorry, I can yeah, hear. Yes. Is there an? Hello. Um, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Now I guess it's uh, it's fixed. Uh, there okay. was something with my mic. Um. So yeah, coming back. Uh. Um. I was just saying that it's a whole lot of a process, and there's so much into this. And uh, coming up to, uh, I would also add up to the question that uh, we can. Uh, do it's an open source thing and we can also yes. contribute so yep. how uh, is there is there any uh, any tip that you want to give and anything that you want to say about uh, how should we start with contributions over this okay so uh there there are two applications right now and if you go to github.com slash htbox that will show the open applications right now um one of them is one that helps find missing children in or or helps parents create information on their phones or store information on their phones so that if a child goes missing they'll be able to have everything ready to help identify you know get the authorities all the pertinent information that could be useful you know like height weight hair color recent pictures who their friends were that they remember being around in the past week so on and so forth um and any any of those kinds of things and then uh, already, which is one that kind of helps track volunteers on any kind of a a, a campaign through um, through a city, through a region, to get some some behavior to change. And then the third one will start uh, shortly. And I would look at the issues. Um, our goal is to have issues set up at a task level where the issue should give a pretty clear statement of what has to happen, um, and then. Where I would start is find one that you think you're both interested in and looks like something you could do. Add a comment saying, hey, I want to work on this. Who can help? Or, you know, what more information do you have? Can you assign it to me? Whatever. And our project leader, 
cool. And the new project is going to be a lady named Carrie Payette. We'll probably respond going, hey, great. Here's how you build it. You know, ping me uh, with anything, any questions, and then just get started. Um, and definitely ask questions. Uh, GitHub is great for that collaboration of, you know, sure. here's questions I have on the issue. As soon as you can, open up a branch with a pull request that's a draft and say, here's the direction I'm going. Is this right? Do you have any comments? And just try to get get the feedback that you can as you get started. And uh, the further you go, the more comfortable you'll get. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so, how? Uh, there's another question. So, how did you start as a tech content writer? And like, there were numerous blogs I could see, and you published four books. Uh, and what's the story there? Um, this one, yeah. There, there's a lot of story there. I um, I had lived in Ann Arbor for quite a while, and one of the my mentors there was a gentleman named Richard Hale Shaw, who wrote for PC Magazine probably in its heyday about the Windows 3.1 era, you know, very early 80s and uh, and so on. And I had expressed to him that I wanted to start writing and explaining things as I was starting to first do consulting on my own. And my reason for it, as I said, going back to kind of that mind mapping thing is in order to be a good consultant to help people build software better, you have to grow the skill of explaining things well. So writing a monthly column is a good way to do that. And he worked with me to get my first article published uh, for a project that I was working on at that time for a company that was doing uh, game development for Disney and was part of working on a project that was also being uh, promoted by Microsoft um, that fed into the first version of DirectX uh, way back at that time. And it got started there. And then Richard went off and founded a new magazine called Visual Studio, or at the time it was Visual C++ Developers Journal and a corresponding conference, Visual C++ Developers Conference. And because he knew that I wanted to do more writing and had agreed to help mentor when when it made sense, uh, he asked me to be their fundamentals columnist for C++. So now I'm writing a monthly column on C++ in the 90s. And that magazine merged and grew, kind of merged with what was at the time VBits, which was a visual, uh, excuse me, visual basic developers magazine. And somewhere around 2000, C++ Fundamentals was getting very hard to write about because it was a very mature language. And it was a language that wasn't attracting a lot of new developers as much anymore because uh, Java had just come out. Well, and about that same time was when Microsoft got sued by um, Sun and moved everybody that was on the J++ team into this new language called C Sharp that um, was being developed. So I got, by working on the magazine, I got alpha bits to start playing with, to start writing about C Sharp before it was released. Really liked it and have been working to help explain C, C Sharp and .NET to developers ever since. 
Um, and where I still write about it now is because the .NET ecosystem is still growing. So we are getting new developers who are either coming from other environments or have never written software before or are learning and they've you know, had um, academic experience but have not um, either don't know uh, C-sharp or haven't worked on larger projects yet. So there is still a lot of things to keep covering and to keep bringing back. And the way the language keeps changing, we're bringing in new ways for uh, new techniques to, to solve different problems. Um, so I still get to have a lot of fun explaining that to people. Um, and I had wanted to write a book. The first one I wrote was for a publisher called Coriolis. And they went out of business two weeks after the book was published. So the first printing got done and that was it. Um, barely made the advance. Um, and I said, yeah, this is no fun. Um, what I mean by barely making the advance for folks that aren't familiar with this, when you write a book, the way you get paid for it is you will get an advance against royalties. And then they start filling that number once it starts selling and you will make like roughly 10% of the sale and on each book goes back to the author and then 10 to 15% and then once you fill the advance then you actually start getting checks for future sales. Um, so the publisher going out of business really meant I was not going to make much money on it at all. Um, and then a couple years after that an acquisitions editor talked to me about you know, writing something about C-sharp, and I was like, yeah, I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure I want to write a book again. And said that Scott Myers at the time was just starting to open up his, and start his effective software development series. Um, and if you're familiar with C++, you know, Scott Myers works on effective C++ are like some of the most read C++ books. So I jumped at the opportunity to write effective C-sharp. And that worked well. And then started working on the next one, um, which is one of the fun anecdotes of uh, responding to, to change. I had already signed the contract to do more effective C-sharp. And I was, had the outline all approved and I was working on, on the release. And I went to the 2005 PDC. And all the content that I put together was for C-sharp 2 and what had kind of been leaked a little bit about C-sharp 3. And I thought I liked the outline and where it was going. And the opening keynote of uh, the 2005 PDC had Anders Helsberg showing the world link for the first time, which I, I had never seen. That was really pretty private. Very few, almost no one outside of Microsoft had seen a preview of it before the PDC. And I'm sitting in the third row and I'm starting to take notes like, this is really awesome. This is this incredible stuff they're adding to the language. And about 40 minutes into the keynote, I realize my current outline for this book is complete and total crap. And no one is going to buy it because I'm not covering any of this stuff. So after the conference and talking with Anders and going through a lot of the things and, and coming up with a new outline, I talked to my editor. And my editor is going, you know, we have we have deadlines, we have a date, you, you can't do this. 
and I'm going, and I'm sitting there saying, there is no one that is going to buy this book unless I cover this new content. And we argued about this, and and my writing slowed down because I really was no longer excited about the original outline, and I kept arguing with her. And finally, I got a six-month um, delay, so they literally pulled the printing out of a couple of the uh, printing schedule out of a couple of the of the book book printers. Reworked the outline, reworked the content. Uh, turned out that was right because it did outsell the first book by two to one, and uh, uh, went back on that. And and again, that's like looking at a plan and seeing it's it it no longer makes sense, and then you have to change the plan. Um, and it doesn't matter how good you think the plan is, if it's if you can see it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, and I, and I think that was probably the big lesson there. And then from that, uh, since then, any of the things that I've been doing have been updating those for newer releases as the language has grown. Uh, the most recent one, I really took a big chunk and reorganized a lot of both of them. Um, and says a lot about the language and that the titles and the recommendations of what you should do are pretty much the same, but um, how you achieve different goals. There's a lot better ways to do things than what I wrote in 2005 or 2007. I mean, uh, the thought, the thought, the story has, has like, 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 like the roller coaster <laughs> and the thrillers, <laughs> and, then, and then you just stop, and then you thought it's not good, then then you then you restructure the whole thing and did it again. I mean, wow. That takes courage. That takes a lot of courage. I'm, I'm inspired by you already. I'm just um, this is this is really inspiring. This conversation is teaching me a lot. So uh, coming up with the next important question. So you have been working in Microsoft as a senior content developer and uh, has been awarded the most valued professional for like 11 times now. How has this journey been? And what's the most different thing that you find about Microsoft? the most favorite um, part. Wow, so um, as an MVP, you're outside of Microsoft, um, but you're kind of one of the trusted people who gets access to some early releases and gets to give early feedback to product teams. And so I joined Microsoft four years ago, or yeah, a little more than four years ago now. Um, oh. Sacha's leadership, I think, is one of the biggest things. And I think it's, um, I would not say this is just something, you know, Sacha and Balmer are two totally different people. I think it's also the time, you know, not having the Department of Justice going after them changes what you can do. Um, and, and I think Balmer's skills were right for that time. And as you look at now, it's, it's much more technology focused. And the biggest difference, I think, is the way we do so many more things in the open. Everybody gets treated the way we used to be treated just as MVPs. In that now, anybody who's interested in the product development or in how certain areas evolve can go onto GitHub and make their voice heard. Um, and just like when we were MVPs and we would 
give feedback to the product teams, it doesn't mean they're going to do what you say, but it does mean they're going to listen and take into consideration what you're thinking. Um, you know, and especially if it's voiced wisely, um, you know, and with, with, with real things behind it. Um, you know, rants don't work and they don't work now, but if you can say, you know, this feature is not going to help me and the reason it's not going to help me is the way it's designed this is harder and it runs into these things and and so on those that kind of feedback definitely gets looked at and and really gets thought about hard yeah so um well for like advices for people who are going for an internship now or starting with one and how like searching for one as well, how to focus more, how to be productive enough, and how to choose that those skills, those those particular skills that we actually can work wonders in. How did you choose yours? Um, I would look for the intersections of things that you're really interested in and things that look like they are going to be successful. And, and and then oh, a, a side trip a little bit as to just how possible you think they are. Um, in that, you know, as I look at the ones that, that worked well, and, and not everything worked well. I honestly, I, I still miss my Windows phone. I think it was a better user experience than either the iPhone or the Android. Um, and there were a couple others along the way that I thought were going to do better than they did. And I can't, it's been too long since I've worked with them. I don't remember right now. Um, but look for something that looks like it's gonna get some momentum, which doesn't always necessarily mean it's from a big company. Like if I were looking at software languages right now, I would really look at Go. I think there's some very interesting things in the Go language. Um, and, I would look at things that are really interesting to you. You know, if you like machine learning, that's a super rich area and there's gonna be a lot of things there. Um, putting computers in more and more different kinds of devices, the internet of things and how that relates to different areas, I think it's gonna be huge. Um, uh, you know, and that, that also plays into electronics and device measurement and so on. There's going to be, you know, sensors everywhere measuring things and, and hopefully helping us do things better. And if that's interesting, you know, whether it's medicine or um, hardware engineering or physical infrastructure, so on, I think we're going to see more things there. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm no, I'm leaving a lot of things out because there's a lot of things I don't watch super closely. But I would look at things that you find interesting and fun. And who looks like they're making interesting progress there and, and which and which ones this just would be fun to get up and do the work. Um, and then mix that in with the skills and with what you like doing. Um, you know, in, in my case, what I like doing the most is helping other people grow. So, you know, you go back to whether it's the writing where people read what I, what I say and hopefully they think they've learned things from it. Um, you know, speaking at conferences, same kind of thing. I Hopefully they learn and get something from the things that I, I show them. Uh, teaching classes, same kind of thing. 
And, uh, you know, when we were growing the company, the part I liked the most was when we were hiring newer, younger, or inexperienced engineers and helping them grow to be more more senior, more capable engineers. That was the part I really just enjoyed getting up and doing. And then, you know, keep looking for how you can spend more of your day doing those things. That's great. Uh, any tips that you would want to uh, give to the developers that those are coming up, those are graduated this year or who are in the final year? Anything? Um, make the most of any opportunity that you do get. Um, it's a sadly unique experience, but I think your your class is going to have a lot of unique experiences to lean on, you know, different than um, a lot of other people. And while there's a lot of things that aren't great about that experience, you know, we're working with a team of interns right now that are all at home. They don't get to experience campus. They don't get to do some of the social things that often get done, that get done every year for interns because they're just not there. Um, you know, the, the people running the intern program are trying to do everything they can to make a good experience, but it's definitely different. Um, and see what you can learn from that. Uh, and then beyond that, see, see what you can do to make that better. I think that actually is going to be a very interesting you know, one, one positive that could come out of the current situation is um, maybe a few years from now, place doesn't matter as much as it once did. And that could be really cool for people all around the world, honestly. Um, and, uh, and that could be a real positive. And maybe, you know, it's, it's your generation that helps bring that, you know, bring that forth more. So, um, so the last round that we have is the fire question round. You will have to answer in a single word. So, like a one-word answer is going to be a fun activity. And I guess I had your permission for this. Sure. So, um, yeah. So, so, shall we start? Sure. Okay. So, your favorite album? Music I'm album. Sorry. Your favorite music album. Favorite music album. Ah, uh, boy. Um, Layla and other assorted love songs. Uh, it's an old Eric Clapton, Derek and the Dominoes album. Sorry, that's a lot more than one word, but. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite singer. Favorite singer. Emily Haynes. She's from oh, uh, wow. Metric, Canadian band. Okay, great. Um, favorite game? Any game? Favorite game. Um, da, 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 da. It's, uh, Settlers of Catan. Okay, and uh, what's the most played instrument that you have? Like, you have played the most. Yeah, uh, definitely the guitar. Um, it's probably the only instrument I play, although I have four of them. Um, so the one I play the most is a Strat, uh, followed by I have a 12-string Martin that I play when it's acoustic music mostly. Wow, <laughs> and the most blissful activity in your job, the most blissful one, like the you are blissful activity that you do in your daily job that makes you do it more that makes you wake up every day i guess uh, you sort of said that earlier <laughs> um, yeah the biggest thing for me is is being to do cool things that i think is going to make it really engaging for new people to learn.net and learn c sharp and make it wow. exciting make it fun that's great okay I am so honored to have you here, Bill, and your story is so inspiring. 
it's everything that everything each and every part of your life and each and every journey of yours has as i said is a roller coaster itself and there's so much to learn we we people stop working when we see failures and i guess your story probably tells us not to and that would be so encouraging for people around here who will watch this episode i'm so glad to have you and um yeah so guys let's wrap it wrap up this episode and we'll wait up for the reviews and the comments and definitely i would want more and more comments and uh, how this thing could evolve and get better and wait for the next session and here we are with another episode of Dave to be i'm super excited and honored to have bill wegner as our guest and there's so much to talk about bill and i would like to like him to do the talking today but so yes he has been uh, his, he has been fabulous throughout his career and he has been so much motivated and uh, has inspired so many lives and journeys so uh, we'll we'll get right to it but before i would want bill to say something uh, <laughs> uh welcome hello everybody um I'm happy you invited me to come here and and chat, and uh, I'm excited to see what all of you do on on your journeys. So, um, Bill, we'll just uh, get to the questions, I guess, if that's fine. Sure. Okay. So, the first question that I have is, um, when did you find out that you are passionate about tech, and like, was it college? and also starting your career as a member of scientific staff what's the story okay so this would have been back in the 80s in high school i started to do some some simple things just with uh, a computer we had in the math department uh that was it was all um programming and basic and i was lucky enough to have a really good math teacher that let us do interesting things in that when we get to this point like in in upper algebra and when you start getting into geometry and calculus um you know where you're doing kind of similar problems and you have to do like 20 of them to get all the practice and so on uh, myself and a couple of other friends started writing small programs on you know these computers the math department had to do our homework and he gave us credit for that because as he put it then is if you can write something for the computer to do these problems you don't need to do you know 20 30 problems by hand um so i really enjoyed that at the same time though i was really really enjoyed physics mostly and started college i was going to be uh head of uh getting a mechanical engineering degree and 
one semester in, I found I liked software a lot more than building things. So switched majors to uh, computer science and engineering and went through the rest of the undergrad program there. Um, the, um, the position for member scientific staff, that was basically just the terminology used by the company was Bell Northern Research, which was the research arm for the Canadian telephone company, um, at that time, Northern Telecom. And a lot of what we were doing then was research for networking and office automation and, you know, related uh, technology there. So there was a lot of really interesting forward thinking things that we were doing in terms of like we had, it was just inside we basically had screen sharing working on ASCII terminals if it was inside the same LAN on the same phone switch. Um, you know, this is 1987, so it was it was some interesting things that we got to do there. Um, and what I worked on primarily there was developer tools, uh, either change management systems or um, other things that were debugging the uh, telephony network and so on. And uh, just kept going from there, learning new things and seeing things I found really interesting, and kept pursuing those. Wow, that's that quite a journey. Might have got you a bit nostalgic. Um, that's fine. So, so yeah, uh, and then there comes the question that's uh, that's like um, after 14 years of your journey as a CEO and with your company being recognized as the fastest growing company in America, not only once, but twice and various other milestones that uh, that you achieved as a CEO. So what was your journey as a CEO and why did you make the decision of selling the firm with so many establishments on the list and that passive growth? So um, a lot of different things and first was sort of how we grow the grew the firm it, it kind of grew by accident in that uh my co-founder and i were both uh strong software people and what we really enjoyed was building the software and the reason we formed a company together is as independents we found that we kept bringing each other in for to work on on each other's projects and you know kept referring things to each other and then started working together and our original vision would have been something that was more of a collaboration of consultants. And that really didn't wasn't going very far. But what we found was having one of us as a lead and bringing in you know, more people that we could work with and help grow, build stronger project teams. So that was kind of how we grew the firm is over the next well, it would have been 13 years, we kept getting larger and larger projects and then kept hiring more developers to help us do larger and larger projects up until 2013. And the reason for selling it is once we got to, once we got probably as far as 2011 or so, so about, you know, once we were kind of part, a good ways up that growth, a lot of our time was no longer involved in the technology part and in building the software or designing the software or any of the things that we really enjoy doing and the things that we started the company to do. But so much of our time was now spent 
running the business, finding new projects, finding new uh, you know, new work for our teams as they finished a different project. And that was not, neither our strong suit, you know, it wasn't what we were best at, nor was it what we wanted to spend our days doing. Um, and we looked around and started to look a little bit to see if we could find someone else to do more of the sales kinds of things and we could each take, kind of restructure the company so we could take on more of the architecture and software development. Um, and we really didn't find anyone that fit the culture and fit the mold. And then we decided at that point that we were going to uh, look for a buyer that, that fit our culture. Um, Atomic Object did that. They had a, uh, and, and they grew similar to what we did, but the difference was the three people they had in leadership really enjoyed you know, finding the new leads and finding the projects to work on more than they enjoyed doing the software work. And uh, that was the reason why we, we accepted their offer, um, you know, which the good part was they kept everybody on staff because they really liked the culture we had built on building software. And then um, again, their structure to be in the leadership, you had to be part of the sales. So, um, which was my whole reason for selling it in the first place. Uh, so that's when I went off to do um, work independently, teaching developers again, and then eventually landed at Microsoft. That's, that's, that's a great, incredible story. And then yes. those tough decisions and those firm, firm passion that you have, it's, it's fascinating. Wow, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blown. So uh, yeah, coming up with the next question. So we, uh, we know that you are the co-founder of the Humanitarian Toolbox, and it is an open source software to support disaster relief efforts. So can you tell me more about it and how code saves lives? And is there anything we are getting on COVID-19? Um, yeah, so so here's sort of the backstory on that. And this there's a theme that's kind of running through these answers that I get to at the end of this one is what's where we started Humanitarian Toolbox, and this was also probably 2013, 2014, so shortly after we'd sold SRT Solutions. A group of friends um, spearheaded primarily by Richard Campbell, who is one of the hosts of .NET Rocks, among other things. And they were approached by Microsoft that Microsoft wanted to do something code for good to support the Visual Studio launch. And Richard really took that to heart, but had a couple really strong requests for it. The main one being that it had to be something that was sustainable, meaning that we had to, you know, it, it couldn't be one of these, okay, so we're gonna write some code and now we're just gonna disappear and people get to use it. We wanted to form some kind of a structure so that whatever got done would be software that was going to be maintained and installed and supported for these organizations that aren't software organizations but that want to use software and could benefit from it and our original model was looking around to see somebody had to be doing this because it was just such an obviously good idea right software to help aid humanitarian relief efforts and we couldn't find anything. There did not seem to be any charity actually doing that, at least not in a sustainable way. Um, and we really didn't like 
partnering with any of the companies that put software in the disaster relief effort. Um, and in part because the cost structure wasn't right. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, and that made it hard for them to really get their software getting used because um, people didn't want to change habits in a disaster. So that was when we formed the charity with the idea that we could build software working with charitable organizations in advance of an event. And by doing it that way, what we would hope was the people who would be on the ground during a disaster would already be familiar with the software and then they could use it effectively and um, make a difference rather than trying to train people to use new software when a disaster happened. Um, when you know there, there's more, much more urgent needs for one, and the last thing you want to try to do is take a trained team and change how they do something in a crisis. So that was where we started, um, and then with the help of another of the founders, Tony Surma, at that time was the director of Microsoft Disaster Relief, which was an organization inside of Microsoft Philanthropies, and what they are responsible for is they will supply resources in times of crisis to local governments, to NGOs or non-government agencies um, or national international organizations that are in support of disasters. Um, they usually do it very quietly um, and just help get things done. And then, so we kind of partnered with them to learn more about what software would be useful and what things we could try to build. And, you know, we filled an Azure DevOps board with like 30 different ideas that came from all over. And we looked for ones that were um, really baked well. So they had good requirements that we've, and we felt that the technology was um, mature enough to make it work. So we started with that and we, then slowly proved that, yes, we can bring developers together to build things that will help people on a volunteer basis if there's the structure around it and if there are project leaders in place that can help define what has to get built. And then the third thing that we really added once we started working on already, which was our second big project, was that to really make it work well, we had to have a representative from an agency who could really help define the requirements and say, okay, these features are the things that we'll really use. Yeah, you're looking at that. I understand what you're saying, developer people with cool ideas. We won't use that. And we could kind of help focus it and, and make sure that the development fit what people were gonna use. Um, and that also helped drive the development a little bit because what we could do then is, as we're looking for volunteers and looking for people to work on it, you know, we could point out, you know, hey, Jim is here from the Red Cross. He is telling us what features he needs. So if you help us on these features, yes, that's going to get used. Your volunteer time is is going to have an impact. Um, and that's where we're sitting now. And now, uh, in terms of COVID. Um, because we're in the midst of the crisis, it is hard to get reasonable requirements to build something for working with COVID. 
And it's also, there are some really specialized research being done on modeling, on uh, molecular biology, uh, machine learning, and um, uh, what's the term I want? Um, you know, the pandemic research to look at, you know, how can we look at the big data sets from what we see and start to learn things. Uh, there are other researchers really doing that, so our best move is just stay out of their way, um, because there are some there are some really big research arms looking at that. What we are doing, and I know when we met last week, I said I think we'd have the board ready. We don't. It's probably going to be about three days. So we're about to launch a project that is kind of retargeting something that was originally going to be built for earthquake preparedness that will now be for COVID quarantine preparedness. And a key thing about it is because it's built for preparedness, it's also applicable to areas that might be prone to hurricanes or typhoons or blizzards or forest fires. You know, are you ready for two weeks without power or two weeks without running water or whatever it may be? and what kind of things should you be ready for and then it's also tied into in this instance for earthquakes the um, u.s geological survey data so it will be able to give alerts if there are early tremors going and again you can adapt that for other weather events like right now there's tropical depression four is forming off the atlantic so you can you know this would be a good time for people in the southeastern united states to think about what the plan would be if it turns into a hurricane you know don't panic don't do anything crazy but you know do you have gas and oil for the generator do you have drinking water at home you know do you know do you have all the documents you need if you need to evacuate and so on that kind of preparedness and again that gets to our model of trying to build software that's useful in multiple situations so that the charities can keep using it um, and I know because you asked, we're going to get that, get a board launched with tasks for people to volunteer on in, within a week. We've got a meeting tomorrow where I think we'll be getting ready to kick it off. And I'll respond in the chat here once that, that board's live to um, put a link if people want to work on it. Um, and as I said, kind of getting onto these answers, it's kind of a theme here in terms of looking at where you want to go. Um, if you look at how we we look at problems as we're and and how we want to solve them, um, the technique I use fairly often is something called mind mapping, where I start with looking at what skills I have right now and and where I'm at. I might look at something kind of off in the distance and say this is really where I want to go. This is an end destination, and then I start trying to build some kind of a map from here's where I am. There's where I want to go. And then around where I am, there are choices I can make. Which of those choices and actions takes me where I want to go? You know, so yeah, yeah. Relating that back to HT Box, the first thing we wanted to do is, well, can we actually get volunteers to build software? Can we partner with charities to get some good requirements? Can we get charities to deploy these applications? Now, can't now we're up to can we build something sustainable that will continue to be useful over a period of years and host it and get it updated and so on. 
So we keep trying one new thing and keep trying to get closer to the vision where we set out for, you know, when we first founded it. Oh, oh, I mean, that's I mean, a good whole lot of process. I can hear myself, I guess. Yeah, hello. Okay. Um, sorry, I guess sorry, I can I guess. hear Is there an... Hello. Um, I can hear you. Okay, yeah, now I guess it's uh, it's fixed. Uh, there okay. was something with my mic. Um, so yeah, coming back, uh, um, I was just saying that it's a whole lot of a process and there's so much into this and uh, coming up to, uh, I would also add up to the question that uh, we can uh, do, it's an open source thing and we can also yes. contribute. So yep. how, uh, is there is there any, uh, any tip that you want to give and anything that you want to say about uh, how should we start with contributions over this? Okay, so uh, there there are two applications right now, and if you go to github.com slash htbox, that will show the open applications right now. Um, one of them is one that helps find missing children in or, or helps parents create information on their phones or store information on their phones so that if a child goes missing, they'll be able to have everything ready to help identify, you know, get the authorities all the pertinent information that could be useful, you know, like height, weight, hair color, recent pictures, who their friends were that they remember being around in the past week, so on and so forth, um, and any, any of those kinds of things. And then uh, already, which is one that kind of helps track volunteers on any kind of a, a, a campaign through, um, through a city, through a region, to get some, some behavior to change. And then the third one will start uh, shortly. And I would look at the issues. Um, our goal is to have issues set up at a task level where the issue should give a pretty clear statement of what has to happen. Um, and then where I would start is find one that you think you're both interested in and looks like something you could do. Add a comment saying, hey, I wanna work on this, who can help? or you know what more information do you have can you assign it to me whatever and our project leader who on the new project is going to be a lady named carrie payette will probably respond going hey great here's how you build it you know ping me uh, with anything any questions and then just get started um and definitely ask questions uh github is great for that collaboration of you know sure. here's questions i have on the issue as soon as you can open up a branch with a pull request that's a draft and say here's the direction i'm going is this right do you have any comments and just try to get get the feedback that you can as you get started and uh the further you go the more comfortable you'll get yeah sure uh, um so how uh, there's another question so how did you start as a tech content writer and like there were numerous blogs I could see and you published four books uh, and what's the story there? Um, this one, yeah, there, there's a lot of story there. I, um, I had lived in Ann Arbor for quite a while and one of the, my mentors there was a gentleman named Richard Hale Shaw who wrote for PC Magazine probably in its heyday about the Windows 3.1 era, you know, very early 80s, 
and uh, and so on. And I had expressed to him that I wanted to start writing and explaining things as I was starting to first do consulting on my own. And my reason for it, as I said, going back to kind of that mind mapping thing, is in order to be a good consultant to help people build software better, you have to grow the skill of explaining things well. So writing a monthly column is a good way to do that. And he worked with me to get my first article published uh, from a project that I was working on at that time for a company that was doing uh, game development for Disney and was part of working on a project that was also being uh, promoted by Microsoft um, that fed into the first version of DirectX uh, way back at that time and got started there and then Richard went off and founded a new magazine called Visual Studio or at the time it was Visual C++ Developers Journal and a corresponding conference Visual C++ Developers Conference and because he knew that I wanted to do more writing and had agreed to help mentor when when it made sense, uh, he asked me to be their fundamentals columnist for C++. So now I'm writing a monthly column on C++ in the 90s. And that magazine merged and grew, kind of merged with what was at the time VBits, which was a visual, uh, excuse me, visual basic developers magazine. And somewhere around 2000, C++ Fundamentals was getting very hard to write about because it was a very mature language and it was a language that wasn't attracting a lot of new developers as much anymore because uh, Java had just come out. Well, and about that same time was when Microsoft got sued by um, Sun and moved everybody that was on the J++ team into this new language called C Sharp that um, was being developed. So I got, by working on the magazine, I got alpha bits to start playing with, to start writing about C Sharp before it was released. Really liked it and have been working to help explain C Sharp and .NET to developers ever since. Um, and where I still write about it now is because the .NET ecosystem is still growing, so we are getting new developers who are either coming from other environments or have never written software before or are learning and they've you know had um, academic experience but have not um, either don't know C sharp or haven't worked on larger projects yet so there is still a lot of things to keep covering and to keep bringing back and the way the language keeps changing we're bringing in new ways for uh, new techniques to, to solve different problems um, so I still get to have a lot of fun explaining that to people. Um, and I had wanted to write a book. The first one I wrote was for a publisher called Coriolis. And they went out of business two weeks after the book was published. So the first printing got done and that was it. Um, barely made the advance. Um, and I said, yeah, this is no fun. Um, what I mean by barely making the advance for folks that aren't familiar with this, when you write a book, the way you get paid for it is 
you will get an advance against royalties. And then they start filling that number once it starts selling. And you will make like roughly 10% of the sale on, on each book goes back to the author. And then 10 to 15%. And then once you fill the advance, then you actually start getting checks for future sales. Um, so the publisher going out of business really meant I was not going to make much money on it at all. Um, and then a couple years after that, an acquisitions editor talked to me about, you know, writing something about C Sharp, and I was like, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm not sure I want to write a book again. And said that Scott Myers at the time was just starting to open up his and start his effective software development series. Um, and if you're familiar with C++, you know, Scott Myers works on effective C++ are like some of the most read C++ books. So I jumped at the opportunity to write effective C Sharp and that worked well. And then started working on the next one, um, which is one of the fun anecdotes of uh, responding to, to change. I had already signed the contract to do more effective C-sharp and I was had the outline all approved and I was working on on the release and I went to the 2005 PDC and all the content that I put together was for C-sharp 2 and what had kind of been leaked a little bit about C-sharp 3 and I thought I liked the outline and where it was going and the opening keynote of uh, the 2005 PDC had Anders Helsberg showing the world link for the first time, which I, I had never seen. That was really pretty private. Very few, almost no one outside of Microsoft had seen a preview of it before the PDC. And I'm sitting in the third row and I'm starting to take notes like this is really awesome. This is this incredible stuff they're adding to the language. And about 40 minutes into the keynote, I realize my current outline for this book is complete and total crap. And no one is gonna buy it because I'm not covering any of this stuff. So after the conference and talking with Anders and going through a lot of the things and, and coming up with a new outline, I talked to my editor. And my editor is going, you know, we have we have deadlines, we have a date, you, you can't do this. And I'm, going, and I'm sitting there saying, there is no one that is gonna buy this book unless I cover this new content. And we argued about this and, and my writing slowed down because I really was no longer excited about the original outline. And I kept arguing with her. And finally, I got a six month um, delay. So they literally pulled the printing out of a couple of the, uh, printing schedule out of a couple of the, of the book, book printers, reworked the outline, reworked the content, uh, Turned out that was right because it did outsell the first book by two to one, and uh, uh, went back on that. And and again, that's like looking at a plan and seeing it's it it no longer makes sense, and then you have to change the plan. Um, and it doesn't matter how good you think the plan is, if it's if you can see it's wrong, it's wrong. Um, and I, and I think that was probably the big lesson there. And then from that, uh, since then, any of the things that I've been doing have been updating those for newer releases as the language has grown. Uh, the most recent one, I really took a big chunk and 
reorganized a lot of both of them um, and says a lot about the language and that the titles and the recommendations of what you should do are pretty much the same, but um, how you achieve different goals, there's a lot better ways to do things than what I wrote in 2005 or 2007. Like roller coaster and thrillers, <laughs> and, and then and then you just stopped, and then you thought it's not good. Then then you then you restructured the whole thing and did it again. I mean, wow, that takes courage. That takes a lot of courage. I'm I'm inspired by you already. I'm just um, this is this is really inspiring. This conversation is teaching me a lot. So uh, coming up with the next important question. So you have been working in Microsoft as a senior content developer and uh, has been awarded the most valued professional for like eleven times now. How has this journey been? And what's the most different thing that you find about Microsoft? The most favorite um. part. Wow. So um, as an MVP, you're outside of Microsoft, um, but you're kind of one of the trusted people who gets access to some early releases and gets to give early feedback to product teams. And so I joined Microsoft four years ago, or yeah, a little more than four years ago now. Um, Sacha's leadership, I think, is one of the biggest things. And I think it's... Um, I would not say this is just something, you know, Sacha and Balmer are two totally different people. I think it's also the time, you know, not having the Department of Justice going after them changes what you can do. Um, and and I think Balmer's skills were right for that time. And as you look at now, it's it's much more technology focused. And the biggest difference, I think, is the way we do so many more things in the open. Everybody gets treated the way we used to be treated just as MVPs. In that now, anybody who's interested in the product development or in how certain areas evolve can go onto GitHub and make their voice heard. Um, and just like when we were MVPs and we would give feedback to the product teams it doesn't mean they're going to do what you say but it does mean they're going to listen and take into consideration what you're thinking um you know and especially if it's voiced wisely um you know and with 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 real things behind it um you know rants don't work and they don't work now but if you can say you know this feature is not going to help me and the reason it's not going to help me is the way it's designed this is harder and it runs into these things and and so on those that kind of feedback definitely gets looked at and and really gets thought about hard yeah so um well for like advices for people who are going for an internship now or starting with one and how like searching for one as well, how to focus more, how to be productive enough, and how to choose that those skills, those those particular skills that we actually can work wonders in. How did you choose yours? Um, I would look for the intersections of things that you're really interested in and 
things that look like they are going to be successful and 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 then oh a, a side trip a little bit as to just how possible do you think they are um in that you know as i look at the ones that that worked well and and not everything worked well i honestly i i still miss my windows phone i think it was a better user experience than either the iphone or the android um and there were a couple others along the way that i thought were going to do better than they did and i can't it's been too long since i've worked with them i don't remember right now Bye. um but look for something that looks like it's going to get some momentum which doesn't always necessarily mean it's from a big company like if i were looking at software languages right now i would really look at go i think there's some very interesting things in the go language um and i would look at things that are really interesting to you you know if you like machine learning that's a super rich area and there's going to be a lot of things there um putting computers in more and more different kinds of devices the internet of things and how that relates to different areas i think it's going to be huge um uh you know and that that also plays into electronics and device measurement and so on there's going to be you know sensors everywhere measuring things and and hopefully helping us do things better and if that's interesting you know whether it's medicine or um hardware engineering or physical infrastructure so on i think we're going to see more things there um you know and and i'm i'm know i'm leaving a lot of things out because there's a lot of things i don't watch super closely but i would look at things that you find interesting and fun and who looks like they're making interesting progress there and, and which and which ones this just would be fun to get up and do the work um and then mix that in with the skills and with what you like doing um you know in, in my case what i like doing the most is helping other people grow. So, you know, you go back to whether it's the writing where people read what I what I say and hopefully they think they've learned things from it. Um, you know, speaking at conferences, same kind of thing. I hopefully they learn and get something from the things that I I show them. Uh, teaching classes, same kind of thing. And uh, you know, when we were growing the company, the part I liked the most was when we were hiring newer younger or inexperienced engineers and helping them grow to be more more senior more capable engineers that was the part i really just enjoyed getting up and doing and then you know keep looking for how you can spend more of your day doing those things that's great uh, any tips that you would want to uh, give to the developers that those are coming up those, those are graduated this year or were in the final year anything um make the most of any opportunity that you do get um it's a sadly unique experience but i think your your class is going to have a lot of unique experiences to lean on you know different than um a lot of other people and while there's a lot of things that aren't great about that experience you know we're working with a team of interns right now that are all at home they don't get to experience campus they don't get to do some of the social things that often get done they get done every year for interns because they're just not there um 
you know, the the people running the intern program are trying to do everything they can to make a good experience, but it's definitely different. Um, and see what you can learn from that. Uh, and then beyond that, see, see what you can do to make that better. I think that actually is going to be a very interesting, you know, one, one positive that could come out of the current situation is um, maybe a few years from now, place doesn't matter as much as it once did. And that could be really cool for people all around the world, honestly. Um, and uh, and that could be a real positive. And maybe you know it's it's your generation that helps bring that, you know, bring that forth more. Yeah. So um, so the last round that we have is the fire question round. You will have to answer in a single word. So like a one word answer is going to be a fun activity. And I guess I had your permission for this. Sure. So um, yeah. So, so shall we start? Sure. Okay. So, your favorite album? Music I'm album. Sorry? Your favorite music album? Favorite music album? Uh, boy. Um, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. Uh, it's an old Eric Clapton, Derek and the Dominoes album. Sorry, that's a lot more than one word, but. <laughs> <laughs> favorite singer? Favorite singer? Emily Haynes. She's from oh, uh, wow. Metric, Canadian band. Okay, great. Um, favorite game? Any Favorite game. Um, uh, da, 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 da. It's, uh, Settlers of Catan. Okay. And uh, what's the most played instrument that you have? Like, you have played the most? Yeah, uh, definitely the guitar. Um, it's probably the only instrument I play, although I have four of them. Um, so the one I play the most is a Strat, uh, followed by I have a 12-string Martin that I play when it's acoustic music mostly. Wow. <laughs> and the most blissful activity in your job, the most blissful one, like the most you are blissful activity that you do in your daily job that makes you do it more, that makes you wake up every day. I guess uh, you sort of said that earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, the biggest thing for me is, is being to do cool things that I think is going to make it really engaging for new people to learn .NET and learn C Sharp and make it yeah. exciting, make it fun. That's great. Okay. I am so honored to have you here, Bill, and your story is so inspiring. It's everything that, everything, each and every part of your life and each and every journey of yours has, as I said, is a roller coaster itself. And there's so much to learn. We, we people stop working when we see failures. And I guess your story probably tells us not to. And that would be so encouraging for people around here who will watch this episode. I'm so glad to have you. And um, yeah, so guys, let's wrap it, wrap up this episode and we'll wait up for the reviews and the comments. And definitely I would want more and more comments and uh, how this thing could evolve and get better and wait for the next session. <laughs>